Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. And as we're taping this, we are uh, coming off of uh, one of those rare sports equinoxes uh, here in the United States. We've been talking about this, that it was coming. And uh, uh, last night it did happen. We had a full set of uh, action across all of the major leagues, MLS, college football, you name it, it was on. Absolutely. Pretty exciting time of the year. I'm hopeful that the Yankees are going to get back into the series and make uh, the baseball run here pretty exciting. But yeah, lots going on, Eric. So, and, and much to uh, unpack here on the podcast this week uh, as well. Uh, we had uh, NFL meetings uh, in New York. I was there. There's a lot that uh, sort of came out of that particular session from the fall meetings. A couple of really interesting developments in Spanish language sports media and uh, We've referenced pickleball on multiple occasions, including last week. Well, more is happening in and around the world. Professional pickleball and another big name investor coming into uh, the realm there. First, we're going to have a conversation with John Stainer from Nielsen Sports. This, of course, is the major measurement company that really serves as a benchmark for uh, how many people are watching uh, a particular program on American sports media. So real interesting conversation with John. Stay tuned for that. Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, John Stainer, Managing Director of Nielsen Sports in North America, where he oversees all client services and commercial activity for the company in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. The U.S.-based Nielsen is the industry leader in media audience measurement, providing a range of services that in turn help govern a wide array of programming and advertising decisions across the sports media landscape. And Stainer engages with hundreds of clients spanning leagues, teams, brands, media entities, and agencies, among others. For decades, the dominant source of American television ratings data, Nielsen this year has been in the midst of significant and historic change, first agreeing to be acquired in a private equity takeover worth about $16 billion, and then striking a transformative agreement with Amazon in which streaming data surrounding its coverage in the National Football League's Thursday Night Football is being measured, marking a major development in the rapidly morphing media landscape. Stainer began his current role in 2018 after previously serving in a similar position in the United Kingdom and Ireland, and before that he held executive-level roles for other sports measurement and research firms, including Repucom and IFM Sports Marketing Surveys. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric, and um, delighted to be on the uh, program today. Chris, great to meet you as well. Absolutely. Nice to meet you. So it gave us sort of a quick synopsis of your uh, career journey there. And you came into Nielsen through the uh, prior acquisition of Repicom. But since then, you've uh, stayed and you've made a home there. Just would, curious to, just to get us started here, your sort of career journey and sort of how and why Nielsen has become home for you. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, look, 20 years, man and boy in the uh, sports marketing research and uh, and consulting business. I cut my teeth uh, back in 2000, 2001 on international projects. I was really fortunate to join a business that was working on the Olympic Games at the time. That led into the Salt Lake Games in, uh, in 2002. And from there, I then went on to work on two FIFA World Cups and, and two further Olympic Games. Um, so 15 years of my career um, really focused on the international marketplace, um, Olympic Games and Football World Cups being a big focus, but also, you know, the big major uh, European soccer leagues like you know, the Premier League and Formula One. And now the last five years over here in the in the US, I'm based in the Northeast in Connecticut, um, really fortunate to um, to work with a, a broad range of clients across, you know, leagues, sports properties professional sports teams, the esports space and, and and the games publisher space as well. So I've made home here in Connecticut with my wife and uh, and, and four kids, and um, I'm really pleased I made the journey across the pond. John, can you give the audience a quick snapshot of the Nielsen Sports portfolio, the kind of services you provide, the kind of business lines that are within your, your purview? Yeah, absolutely. So Maybe I'll just start with like what our sort of like raison d'etre is. It's really to, it's really to grow 
the commercial operations around sports leagues, sports teams, the brands that are investing in and the agencies that are congregating around the market. And we really focus in two areas, one around audiences. So think about everything that Nielsen is famous for from a, uh, a TV and media measurement and consumption perspective. But we also, we also have like a forensic understanding of the sports consumer. And so we, are, we survey consumers in 50 countries around the world through our Fab Insights platform, day in, day out, to understand all of their consumption habits around media, their passion points, their interest in teams, their following. So that's super exciting. So that's the audience part of the business. That really helps our clients understand who their audiences are, how do they connect with them through which platforms and then which content to serve them. The other side of the business is more focused around the monetization of rights principally sponsorship and, and media rights. So on the sponsorship side, you know, one of our core offerings is, is effectively a logo counting service. So over a thousand you know, clients around the world, we are measuring logo exposure for all the brands that are, vis- uh, that are visible across multiple you know, sports events, trying to understand their airtime and their value. And we don't just do that in TV, we do that across social media and digital media. So that's really the focus of, of the business, like understanding audiences and then understanding the commercialization of, uh, of rights. And as you're doing that, there has been so much change just in the last couple of years, really since the start of the pandemic in terms of how the media landscape manifests itself. And, I, and I'm thinking specifically of things like out of home and streaming, of course, and, and as those changes are happening, what has been the overall change in how you're approaching audience measurement? Yeah, absolutely. So like, maybe let me take a step back because I think what's like really keen to Nielsen's measurement is, is the panel. And our, our panel is at the heart of our measurement, both for in-home and, and out-of-home viewing. And those panels really represent like how often, how long, and, and how many people consume content um, every day. The coverage that we have there is, is unrivaled. It's across live TV. It's across digital. So think about mobile and computer. It's on demand. It's video game consoles. It's connected streaming. And it includes things like out of home, over the air, and, and broadband only homes. The panel is important um, because the consumer is at the heart of all the conversations that we have in the, in the, in the sports media and, and the advertising world. And it's people that advertisers are wanting to target and that sports content producers are wanting to deliver to. Um, so think about that in your own you know, household. You all have different touch points with, with media, with your friends and your family. You watch different shows. You watch through different platforms. Um, you can sh- consume media in very different ways. Uh, we're super focused on, on doing that through the, through the panel. The, the other point about the panel, which is super important, is um, its representation. So Nielsen panels, they feature real people who have opted in to be, to be measured. I think key to that is we use U.S. census data. So we create a probability sample of the U.S. based on geography, ethnicity, income, race, and, and many more things to understand how people, people consume video. And we've got over 42,000 households in the panel today, and we turn over these homes on a, on a two-year basis just to properly refresh the panel and reflect the U.S. population. So really important that we start there with the, with the panel. But obviously, you know, what we've seen in, in the last few years is obviously the explosion of, of media choices and, and viewing options. And therefore, the way that people consume content has changed and people now move more seamlessly across devices and, and, and platforms. So this, this mandates big data to be, uh, to be brought into our analysis of, of measurement of viewership and consumption. So we bring big data into a company, our panel, to measure accurately and representatively. And this is where we start on the development of, of Nielsen One. So today, you know, we integrate big data from over 100 million plus devices here in the US. It's the biggest data source out there that includes, you know, across set-top boxes. So think about Dish and Direct TV, as well as smart TVs. So like the Roku, uh, the Rokus and the and the videos of this world. And we combine the panel data and the big data with some super smart people in data science to be able to provide this person-level cross-platform measurement. And this is what we're doing with Nielsen One for both content and for ads. So this is the development of our uh, our next gen viewership uh, model. 
John, when we think about the explosion in the streaming space, how, as you observed all of this data, how quickly is that happening? And could we get to a point within the next, call it three to five years, where 80 or 90% of sports consumption is through streaming versus linear? Where are we on that kind of growth trajectory of streaming as a percentage roughly of the overall consumption? Yeah, look at this, this area is growing fast, Chris. So yeah, maybe put a little, little bit of context. There's um, more than one third of US homes um, now access TV programming through through internet connections. Um, this summer, you know, some of the major you know, streaming distributors like like Prime Video, like Netflix, like Hulu and YouTube, they all captured record uh, level highs for uh, for shares of, of viewership. Um, and, and compared to you know, one year ago, like streaming consumption is up 23% against the corresponding summer period. So like quite significant explosion in this area. And what was really interesting for us was, was during the summer, every month we, um, you know, Nielsen runs a, a monthly total TV and, and streaming snapshot called, uh, called the gauge and streaming usage actually surpassed cable and broadcast to claim you know the largest share of television viewing for the first time in in July and look and sports is heading in this direction right we have amazon with thursday night football uh, we have the recent deal with with apple and and major league soccer we have peacock with uh, wwe streaming rights with the epl uh, you know and partial rights with with big 10 and then we've got you know exclusive dedicated and focused Sports class platforms such as the Zone. I happened to be at um, SVJ's World Congress of Sports this week, and you know we heard, we heard Don Garber talk about the relationship um, with with Apple, and that eighty percent of you know MLS fans are consuming sport through through streaming platforms, and that really ties in with you know a lot of the research and the data that we have in terms of how how sports fans are um, are consuming sports and getting their getting their daily fix for, uh, for sports content. So I think this area is going to continue to develop with pace. And then we'll see more and more sports rights, you know, move to streaming platforms, either on an exclusive, exclusive or semi-exclusive basis. The National Football League, of course, has such a dominant position across the entire American media landscape, regardless of genre. You know, we're getting to about a, a third of the way here through the 2022 season. What's your assessment of how the league has performed so far this year? And are we going to continue in your mind seeing a situation where the NFL distances itself or continues to distance itself from every, all other programming? I think it's already distanced itself. And I'll come on to that in, in just a moment. Um, but, you know, let's think about live sports just for one moment here. And I think, you know, in general, that is one of the last bastions of appointment-based viewing. And, you know, and we see that through a lot of analysis, 94 of the top 100, you know, viewed shows on broadcast in 21 were sports, 69 of the top 100, you know, cable broadcasts were, were sports. So like, if we get into the question around the NFL, you know, like it's a juggernaut and it's continuing to, to grow across 2021. NFL viewership was around about 18 million on average. This was five times larger than the most uh, than the next most watched league in NASCAR, but around about three, you know, three, three to three and a half million viewers, and significantly higher than than the third base sport in NBA, uh, you know, over two million million viewers. So it's already kind of like distanced itself, and advertisers are still they're still craving and clamoring around spending around NFL broadcasts. In 21, we saw nearly $8 billion spent around NFL program, programming by the advertising community. Um, if we compare that to you know, a pre-pandemic period in 2019, it's up 31% from that period. And Eric, as you said, you know, like nearly third way through the season, we're seeing the performance being, being super strong. NFL reported 5% increase in audiences over the same time period last year. And since actually the 22 season has started, it's dominated 24 of the top 25 watch broadcasts. What do you think the 25th one was? NBA finals? No, it was, it was football again. Yeah. <laughs> College football. Oh, Texas. CFP title game. Yeah, Texas, Alabama. 
So, like, you know, it's not it's not just the dominance of the NFL, it's the dominance of football. Yep. So, John, obviously the, the NFL is a juggernaut. You know, I spent a, a bunch of my career there. But were you even surprised at the magnitude of the numbers the league achieved on some of these early Amazon Thursday nights? And what impact do you think that success will have, you know, going forward on other leagues as they think about their rights? Yeah, and obviously, look, Chris, yeah, great question. And you know, there was a lot of attention around what the Amazon viewership would um, would deliver. And we obviously had the um, the preseason game come in around about a, you know, a, a million viewers. But, you know, honestly, that was on par with um, with other NFL network games. But I think that put a little bit of kind of like fright in the industry. I mean, that, okay, like we're going to be averaging somewhere around like five to seven million viewers um amazon had obviously come out also you know suggesting that you know they were going to be averaging around about 12 12 and a half million viewers so i think like we were we were somewhere in the middle of those those numbers and obviously delighted with the you know the opening game nielsen ratings were, were at about 13.2 million viewers which was a you know it was a great audience and you know, we're averaging around about 11.9 million viewers through through the first four weeks, and that's up about 40% on corresponding period on on 2021. So, look, I think it ties in really nicely with what we talked about earlier in terms of you know we are starting to see a shift towards streaming platforms. We've seen their share of viewing increase over time, and in particular hitting some high spots leading up to the September period. For the, for the kickoff of the season for NFL. And we seem to see some pretty aggressive promotion and, um, and advertising around the prime broadcast um, leading up to that week two game and continuing. So I think that's you know, allowed for discovery of the content as well. And it's a super good product. There's interactivity, there's choice for viewers of different demographics and different needs. So I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited that, you know, they've got 11 years as well to play around with this thing. <laughs> All that kind of suggests to me is like further innovation in the way that the show is is broadcast um, and what the product looks like. Further innovation in terms of how they integrate the advertising and sponsorship community. Re- really excited about, you know, how they might think about, you know, more tailored packages across the different streams that they have for for, um, for different advertisers um so i see a heap of room for you know the nfl and and amazon to to learn and grow with each other to try out some new concepts and to really revol- revolutionize the future of live sports broadcasting want to shift gears for a moment to the sponsorship uh, measurement and evaluation space and curious as to what you're seeing on that part of your business, particularly as we're seeing a lot of advancement in virtual advertising and other forms of digital activation. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think the first thing, obviously, some fragmentation of, um, of, of media consumption, you know, moving from linear to live streaming, obviously proliferation of social media channels, not just from a kind of a, you know, a league and a team perspective, but also for, for athletes as well. So, Eric, frankly, there's a lot more to measure right now. So, but we're, you know, we're super excited at the work that we're doing there with our computer vision technology. We use a heap of mach- machine learning and artificial intelligence um, to, uh, to identify and provide a whole heap of metadata around, um, around branded exposures. What it's really like, you know, asking for is you know, more sophisticated ways of of measuring sponsorship and measuring your know, return on investment. So, you know, we're heavily focused in that world and helping our clients understand how their sponsorship investments stack up against their other media and marketing investments and helping them make, you know, smart decisions around the portfolio of investments that they're making in marketing and also around you know the portfolio of investments that they have in they have in sponsorship so lots of stuff going on in this world with regard to you know digital advertising we we also saw the you know, inception of that during um during covid as, as teams came back and obviously in the last week we've had the uh, the start of the nhl season um the, the digital advertising on the on the dashboards 
we are right in the thick of that as you know one of the major providers of providing measurement and most importantly the best possible coverage across all of those different streams um to help you know not only the rights owners and the teams but the brands understand you know the efficiency and the effectiveness of um of this form of advertising so yeah we're it's early days we got some early measurement in but you know excited to see how that plays out across the rest of the season John, digging a little bit deeper on this, when you kind of described the measurement business initially, you kind of talked about logo counting. I know it's a lot more than that, but but at a high level, sponsors, I think, probably used to care about what's the media exposure we get for our logo and brand. But now as we fast forward, are sponsors more concerned about what kind of engagement they're getting, other kinds of things you can measure? What are their needs? How are their needs evolving in terms of what they find valuable and how it how it relates to what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I still think there's a lot of focus around like how do we put a you know a monetary return or value on partnership. Um, but you know certainly a lot of work being done on how sponsorship impacts marketing objectives. Um, so we think about everything um, you know through the through the marketing funnel. Like does it does sponsorship drive awareness for the brand? Does it drive interest in the brand and potential adoption and conversion and ultimately um, sales of the brand? We're also seeing explosion around understanding the the value of, of purpose-based marketing as well. So, you know, how do initiatives and community outreach and specific activations that have social impact and purpose-based impact how is that shifting brand metrics as well? And so, you know, we think about that all as part of an overall you know, return on investment model for you know, for brands and advertisers who are investing in this space, but also for the you know for the sports property holders as well, who are trying to demonstrate that it's not just about logo counting; it's about the connections that we can make. It's about the audiences you can target, and it's about the impact that you can have on those audiences. I mentioned at the outset the acquisition of Nielsen by a couple of private equity firms, Evergreen Coast Capital and and Brookfield Business Partners. As that deal has now come to completion, to what degree does that change what you're doing and what's happening within Nielsen Sports? Yeah, so like for us, very much you know business business as usual. You know, huge focus on um, on Nielsen One, and as we've discussed here, the you know. Sports is a really in, important component of the uh, of the media industry, and our, our need to be able to measure sports viewership is going to be as important, you know, tomorrow as it is today. I'm really excited about, you know, how we really expedite and strengthen, you know, some of the big milestones that we've got on our on our product roadmap. So, yeah, looking looking forward to you know working with the new ownership group and and of course our existing leadership on you know driving our product roadmap forward and providing the best in class services around you know measurement and outcomes in the in the industry. John curious there's been a lot of discussion over the last uh, 12 months about web3 and the metaverse and how that might intersect with the sports space. How have you guys approached that? Is that really more just you know, experimental and understanding the the space. Have you begun to think about what kind of products could be developed there? What's your view on on what's happening there? Yeah, so you know, a little bit experimental. I, I mean, I have a business that plays in in that space, plays in the in the gaming space, and we talk to uh, consumers every single week here in the U.S. and then in multiple countries around the world on their attitudes and and perceptions to to Web three and to you know, gaming and to upcoming titles and things like that. And, you know, we're thinking a lot more as well around, you know, the potential monetization opportunities and engagement opportunities for for brands in, in playing in that space. And then also for, you know, for sports properties and, and leagues and how they build a, a Web3 strategy and how they intersect more with that with that gaming community. For sure, you know, we are seeing... You know, the younger, the consumer of tomorrow, they are congregating around this space. So, you know, like we got a lot of focus on trying to understand that consumer of tomorrow. You know, a lot of the work that we're, that we're doing is, you know, work with, with teens and preteens and, and understanding, 
that space, their media consumption habits and what they expect from uh, from a content perspective. So, yeah, look, excited about this space, but, you know, early days in terms of, you know, building understanding both for ourselves, but for our clients in the industry. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around Nielsen and Nielsen Sports. We're going to continue to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank John Stainer for spending this time with us. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Chris. Absolute pleasure. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank John Stainer again from Nielsen Sports for spending that time with us and turning our attention now to the news of the week here. As Chris uh, alluded to at the end of last week's episode, we had NFL fall meetings coming up, and those indeed did happen on October 18th in New York. I was there. A lot of interesting stuff uh, came out of this. Chris, you were no stranger to these types of meetings back in the day here, and a lot of things to unpack here, but let's uh, sort of start with the most perhaps the most definitive piece of news coming out of this, that Amazon is uh, once again extending its reaches into all facets of the NFL here, that they've picked up yet another game as part of their streaming package beginning next year. And ideally in the years to come thereafter, there will be a new game on Black Friday, day after Thanksgiving here in the U.S. That's going to be a part of the league schedule and streamed exclusively with Amazon some new Black Friday afternoon game here. And this is one of the things that we've been sort of alluding to here over the weeks and months here that, you know, the NFL is already the industry colossus and, you know, the the way the schedule is morphing and changing. They were already getting into Christmas Day, going deeper into February. And this is now yet another major American holiday that they've sort of taken over or looking to take over with this new game. Yeah, I think it's a smart move for both companies. As you mentioned, Eric, this is really an extension of what the NFL has already been doing with some of those other holidays, also with the European games, which are now in the mornings on the weekends. I think the one thing longer term the NFL needs to be concerned about is do you ultimately create a bit of dilution? I think the best thing about the NFL from a, a viewership standpoint is each day appears to be an event or creates an excitement. If you spread your games around too many days, Uh, potentially you do dilute that a little bit, but I don't think that's where they are with this Friday extension. And I, I do think it will be beneficial for Amazon as well. Oh, yeah. And that's that's really one of the things that jumps out to me that when Amazon was originally looking to get involved with sports rights, part of the original premise that we've been talking about all this time was that real synergy between the streaming and the e commerce. And You know, it's hard to think of a more powerful mixture than what we're talking about specifically here, where you've got one of those big shopping days of the entire year. You know, one of the major pieces of uh, sports content put together with online retail, with this major shopping holiday, all sort of coming together on one site. You know, I expect to see all sorts of massive results from this. I agree, and 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 maybe even a focus if if I was in the NFL shoes on selling NFL apparel and of NFL course. gifts for the holidays. Of and and it, it, it just becomes not only a viewing opportunity, but a way to think about the NFL as you're going out and shopping and what kind of gifts are you going to get for your friends and your children? Well, why not get some NFL jerseys and other things? So I think this plays well on a bunch of different levels. Yeah. And you can really even theoretically think of this sort of popping up in real time alerts that you know the two teams are playing next year in this game. And we'll find out next spring when the schedule comes out. But some player scores a touchdown in that game and then a link immediately pops up, go buy this player's jersey. You can literally do that in real time now. Yeah, that's really this will be an interesting experiment in this combination of commerce and content and the ability, as you suggest, to buy in real time. And because it's streaming and you have all the functionality of of the web and, and, and digital media, those kinds of experiments are going to be very interesting to see. Yeah. And and the timing of when this was announced was sort of interesting that they've been working on this for a while. And obviously they want this to be sort of part of the annual tradition, the NFL sort of building upon these other holidays. And of course, what they've been doing for decades on Thanksgiving. 
but how and when they chose to disclose this was sort of interesting that they did this after five or six weeks of Thursday night football. And, you know, we've been talking about this in prior weeks and, you know, we had Patrick Craig's on discussing this at length as well. And we're at a point where they can sort of safely talk more about this and doing more with Amazon because the product works. The streaming has really been rock solid from an operational perspective. The production value has been good. The numbers have ebbed a little bit. It started around 13 million, have settled in more around 9, 10 million. The game quality, you know, perhaps uh, in recent weeks may be an issue here, but, you know, pretty solid and not the 5 million death spile or any of the lower numbers that were sort of feared, as we discussed with Patrick and others, that they sort of chose this moment to disclose this, knowing that the Amazon product works as intended. And that may be one of the reasons. Another reason may have been just trying to continue to manage this Sunday ticket bidding process, which is kind of happening in the background. So as you know, a few weeks ago, they announced that Apple was going to be the halftime sponsor. And now they're adding additional inventory and opportunities for Amazon. So you could see at some level the thinking of let's get a bunch of the bidders even more excited about the NFL relationship to potentially you know, drive up that price. Again, this is more speculation, but having been inside the NFL, I do think they're very smart about the way they manage those negotiations. And this is, is now a way of getting another partner uh, even more uh, excited about that relationship. Well, I'm glad you brought up Sunday Ticket because that was another uh, element that came out of uh, the fall meetings here and much less definitive, although I asked Brian Rolap, their uh, chief media and business officer, directly as to where this whole situation stands, because we were expecting to have a deal by about now. And that was the timetable previously detailed by the commissioner, Roger Goodell, back during the Sun Valley conference in the summer that we were expecting to see something by the fall. And here we are in the middle of the fall and nothing yet. And so now the new timetable that they're looking at is by the end of the calendar year. So perhaps still within the next you know, eight to 10 weeks that we're going to know something. But uh, there appears behind the scenes to be some potential friction with Apple. You know, they've long been seen as the, uh, you know, likely uh, winner for these Sunday ticket rights. But they're used to having a broad latitude of the rights that they do get. And uh, Eddie Q, one of their uh, key executives, spoke with Don Garber about this recently, that one of the beauties of their MLS deal is that they can really do a lot of different things, that there's a very broad swath of rights in that particular deal. Sunday ticket, much more narrowly defined, and they have X number of games and they can be deployed in a very specific way. And there's a bit of a philosophical um, difference that needs to be bridged to get this deal over the goal line. I, I don't uh, know the details. Uh, you know, I, I know we're all speculating a bit about what the issues may or may not be, but I would say the Apple MLS deal is kind of an outlier in terms of the breadth of rights available, where Agreed. effectively MLS just removed local games and local broadcasts and all of that feeds into to Apple. I think it will be hard for Apple to get that kind of swath of rights with the NFL, NBA, any of the sort of, let's call it four major sports. And so, you know, we'll see where they come out in terms of being satisfied or not. I would also, you know, speculate that uh, with the NFL media rights, potentially being part of this on media businesses, the NFL.com, NFL Network, there are so many different iterations that could be played out in terms of how that does or doesn't tie into what happens with Sunday ticket, that that could also be driving some of the, the time delay in terms of figuring out the optimal structure, because this isn't necessarily just about, you know, buy the Sunday ticket package or not. It may be how these other media elements flow into it. That's a great point. And so much more to come on that front. Another major uh, happening coming out of these meetings was surrounding the Washington Commanders. And obviously, this is another situation we've discussed at length, uh, given all of the uh, workplace culture issues and ownership issues surrounding Dan Snyder, the, the commander's owner and the team itself. From the league perspective, as that whole situation has unfolded, they've done a very good job of sort of of any way trying to button this situation up and, and sort of keep everybody on that side of the table singing from the same uh, sheet of music, so to speak here. Well, that really changed this week where you had Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Mersey really speaking out and saying that there was merit to considering removing Dan Snyder as owner of the commanders. First time we've seen that 
publicly in relation to this whole situation. And again, Chris, as you well know, the, the culture of the NFL historically is to try to keep these uh, you know difficult situations buttoned up publicly as much as possible. And we went in a whole other direction this week. Well, at least with Mr. Ursay, we did. Roger mm-hmm. came out afterward and said, look, it's not it's probably not all that helpful to be talking about this until the investigations are complete. But again, who knows whether there was a wink and a nod to go ahead and make those statements or not. I do think the owners tend to prefer to have these conversations privately. I'm sure there were a lot of private conversations at lunches and dinners around the owners meeting, even though this wasn't officially a topic at at those sessions. And so, again, I, I think until the investigations are completed, this is still going to be just a lot of discussion and postulation. And and certainly the commanders came out after Mr. Ursay's comments and said they have no reason to sell the franchise and they won't sell the franchise. And so for right now, I think that's where we're at until more facts are put on the table, uh, despite what might be written or discussed in the media. Yeah, fully agreed. And there's there's much more to come on this. Obviously, there's a multiple investigations. We've got a congressional investigation. We've got a league commission investigation. We haven't seen the final results of either of those relative to the commanders. The other thing that's really going to be important to bear watching is what ultimately happens vis-a-vis the sponsors. Sponsors had, you know, a pretty influential role in uh, the team ultimately changing its name to the commanders. Will those same corporate sponsors that represent such a critical revenue source have a ultimate role to play here and who owns the team over the long term. And that That's true, Eric. And I, I again, maybe I haven't been as tapped into the local Washington, D.C. scene, but I haven't heard as many sort of loud voices on that front as I have heard with obviously some of the NWSL situations and, and some of the other you know NBA and the Sarver case. So I haven't heard as much of that. Also, I don't believe there's been, you know, players on that team that have come out strongly one way or the other. And so we'll see whether from a sponsor perspective, a player perspective, other constituents, the voices get louder on what should happen there. And that's precisely the point that I'm making here, because in particularly in the case of Sarver, once these other constituencies started really speaking out, that's when that the whole oxygen on that situation changed. And you are correct. It has not, at least not yet, relative to the commanders. Yeah. So that, again, there may be another event here, meaning the results of one of these investigations get published. And depending upon what those are, that has an effect in terms of those other constituents and then maybe drives an outcome here. But right now, again, I think we're in a holding pattern as far as the commanders are concerned. And certainly until these reports come out. But shifting our gears from the NFL to one of Spanish language media, we had a couple of really interesting deals that this is a segment of the industry, uh, you know, really large and growing and something that really doesn't necessarily get a, a lot of the limelight, so to speak. But two really interesting deals this week where we had uh, Televisa Univision, you know, the big entity that uh, merged last year. They've done a landmark deal with Liga MX, the, the Mexican League, where they're going to be bringing that league's rights to market in the U.S. in a whole much larger and more unified way here that there has been uh, some media rights deals, some sponsorship deals, some collaborations with major league soccer and so forth. But it's all been sort of a piecemeal thing. Now we have a structure in place to take all of those commercial rights and bring them to market in the United States in a whole new way. So that's one deal. The other deal separately where you had Peacock uh, finalizing plans to stream every World Cup match in Spanish, simulcasting coverage from Telemundo, Deportes' sister uh, entity under NBC Universal. And this is really going to be the only way to watch uh, every World Cup game in the U.S. on on a streaming platform. Uh, Fox isn't even going to be doing that. And really, in both of these instances, what it really speaks to is this very large, very vibrant, in many ways, still underserved Hispanic audience in the United States and really trying to put more sports content in front of this audience. Well, starting with the Liga MX deal, this really is a, a powerful league and powerful content in the U.S., that many in the sports industry don't realize, you know, how big and how important it is. And right Actually now, it does better than MLS in many respects. It does, and and I, as I understand it, Eric, the from a just pure media rights standpoint, the clubs sell their rights individually. 
So uh, apparently uh, Univision has about 13 out of the 18 teams in terms of, of U.S. Uh, basis. media. And then and then on a obviously broader marketing and commercial standpoint now, they have Univision the rights to basically exploit the league across events, across uh, sponsorships, other kinds of opportunities. And I do think this is going to be a huge opportunity for Liga MX to become even more a part of the day-to-day sports ecosystem in the United States. I would say the Peacock deal, while at some level is about Spanish language, May it be as much about what you suggested, a way for cord cutters to watch the World Cup yeah. without having to pay for a cable subscription. And so it's kind of an interesting one where, as you said, Fox is not putting the games live on Tubi, their streaming service. They are basically keeping the live games on linear television. So technically, if you are a cord cutter, you don't have a way to watch those games unless you want to watch them on Peacock in Spanish. And I do think there'll be a lot of fans, whether they speak Spanish or not, who are going to do that. And it was, I think, a very clever move by Peacock to acquire these rights. Yeah. And, and for Peacock and NBC Universal, really just kind of a continuation of the through line since the service debuted more than two years ago, that the Premier League rights were a foundational piece of that initial rollout of the service. And They've continued to add more in the way of international sports and obviously big things like Major League Baseball as well domestically. But, you know, soccer was a foundational piece from the get go. And so there was a very clear strategic through line that dates back more than two years here. Yeah. And th- these are these big events, as we saw for NBC with the Olympics yep. and with uh, Super, Super Bowl, Bowl, these are ways to get people signed up. And so I think that from a you know, can we attract new subscribers? This could be very valuable. The way they're structuring it, Eric, is they're giving the first 12 games for free and effectively on their free tier. So they're getting people involved, getting them in a sense hooked on the product. And then uh, the next 52 games are part of a subscription tier. And again, this is the exclusive way to watch the World Cup in the U.S., on streaming. And I do think it's going to be a very effective sign up tool for Peacock. Now, once you sign people up, you've got to obviously keep them and they need to keep paying their subscription. But I do yep. think this will come, this will turn out to be one of the more successful, in a sense, user acquisition tools that these streaming services have employed. Yeah. And one of the numbers I'm going to be really interested to see is what kind of audience they get on specifically Black Friday this year. We talked about Black Friday next year vis-a-vis the NFL, but Black Friday this year has got a huge match uh, in the World Cup between the U.S. and England. You know, people have been penciled that out for months. It's going to be a big deal on Fox. Uh, They've got a whole linear plan rolled out on this. But in terms of the digital and what's happening here with Telemundo and the Spanish language coverage, You know, I think they're going to do big numbers there, too. I expect they will. And overall, Eric, I would say the buzz around World Cup, at least in the U.S., isn't as high as it will be or could be. I think as we head toward the actual kickoff day, we'll see that increase. But especially if we get into November. Yeah. And but especially if the U.S. can get past the first round and get them stage and and really get further along, then I do think we'll see the the huge soccer fans of of, of countries all over the world who are now in the U.S. But I do think if the U.S. can make a bit of a run here, I think that's going to vote very well for Peacock and all the other in Fox and all the other broadcasters that have a piece of this. And as you see more deals like this happening and you see Televisia and Univision really strengthening themselves post-merger here, you know, I think we can all expect to see many more deals like this that really put a lot of top-tier Spanish language content in front of consumers, again, whether or not they actually do speak Spanish. But you can really start to see a lot of this two-tier deal-making that we already had with the World Cup rights, where the Spanish language rights, for all the obvious reasons, were just as much, if not more so, of a big deal here in the U.S. than the English language rights. But for many other properties, you can see a greater segmentation in terms of really carving out Spanish language rights and making them their own separate track and their own separate negotiation. Absolutely. And it's it's it may extend well beyond ultimately media. We were seeing companies like Hefe Bet geared toward the Hispanic audience from a sports betting standpoint. We've seen other products and services, not necessarily just about language, but really about attracting the Hispanic audience who, you know, are huge sports fans. Uh, again, Liga MX is probably the biggest property, but but there are others. And so I do think we'll see more of that focus as we go forward. 
Well, much more to come on that front here, but we're going to shift from the uh, the world of Spanish language media and soccer to one of pickleball. We've been talking about this uh, for some time, increasingly so, and, and we alluded to this with LeBron James and our uh, athlete investment segment last week. Well, just days later, we've got more of this uh, that uh, just right on the heels of LeBron James and Tom Brady getting involved in Major League Pickleball. We've got Kevin Durant, the NBA superstar, scoring champion, uh, uh, you know, NBA finals champion, so on and so forth. You know, one of the top players uh, in the NBA, he had now uh, through his 35 ventures and business partner, Rich Kleiman, he is now also uh, getting involved in major league pickleball. And there's, there's a real groundswell on this, that this is something that's been buzzed about in a lot of industry corners for some time now, but you, you see the type of people that are getting brought in on this, uh, you know, there, there appears to be a real inflection point happening here. This is the hot uh, league of the moment. And again, as you mentioned, there have been a lot of celebrities who have gotten involved in acquiring teams. Part of what's driving this is huge amount of participation in pickleball. There are some statistics out there that say it's the fastest growing sport in the U.S. from a player standpoint. Four and a half million people now play pickleball. Uh, when you think about buying these franchises, you know the cost is in the single millions of dollars. So it's not like buying an NBA team at the moment. So I, again, I think for a lot of celebrities, and it's not just players, there's a lot of high net worth folks involved. I think Gary Vee is involved. There's, there's others that owning a team is something that a lot of people dream of. And now you can actually do that in a sport that appears to have a lot of growth ahead. And so they've gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of people involved and excited about it. But again, the big question is whether they can really turn that recreational participation and interest into something meaningful from a spectator standpoint. That's sort of the big question to really turn this into a large scale media and sponsorship type of situation. And there's been lots of other sort of it sports of the moment in recent years that have sort of come and gone. And even something that's really played the long game here, like Major League Soccer, you know, they've had massive amounts of youth participation, you know, for many years. And they're still in the midst of trying to convert that into something bigger than even where they are now. And so there's a lot of road ahead here, although, you know, some of these early steps for pickleball are very interesting. They are, Eric. I think that is going to come down to whether it becomes a big uh property from a professional level, you know, is it compelling to watch? Do we care about the competitors and the players? You know, Kevin Durant. Stars. Yeah. Kevin Durant is not going to be playing. Right. Maybe he'll be playing a pro-am tournament, but he's not going to be out there. It's going to be the best pickleball players in the world. So what we don't know yet is from a television, streaming media, other perspective, whether the fans are going to embrace this and want to watch it or whether this is just something that's fun to play but you know, it, it doesn't really become a major sports property. We're, we're still in the early days, but that's really going to be the question. But what they have locked down, and it is an important foundational piece, is the influencer component and the evangelist component, because you just have to look at the types of global followings that LeBron James, a Tom Brady, Kim Clijsters, Kevin Durant, all these names that we're mentioning, you know, these people have tens of millions of followers uh, around the world, each of them. And, uh, you know, having that kind of influence, uh, you know, from a brand attribute standpoint, it, really important. It is important. It will certainly drive sampling, meaning consumers right. will will want to check it out. Trial. And again, from there, it depends on whether it's interesting or not. Uh, having those celebrities involved will also get sponsors potentially excited about being involved, at least to try it out and see whether they want to associate with their brands with with this product. Again, if there's a big audience, that will become a longer term thing. If basically it's a flash in the pan from a media standpoint, then, then it won't. But again, this particular sport has more momentum as an emerging sport than, than any I've seen in the last decade in terms of just the quick escalation. And so it, it does have a shot, but it's still got to be an interesting product. So obviously, we're going to be continuing to track that going forward here, but uh, very interesting stuff in this in these early days here. But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a bit of a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Eric, uh, you probably saw the news that Fubo TV yep. was uh, suspending or ending its uh, sports betting initiatives. I believe that's important because you know, we're now seeing a bit of a consolidation 
in the sports betting space. There has been tremendous top line growth in sports betting, but the competition has made it very difficult for a lot of these betting operators to make money. So the question really looking forward is, are we going to see more of this? Are we going to see more consolidation? Are we going to see more companies kind of pull out of the market if they can't make money? Or are we going to continue to see 25 or 30 operators slugging it out? Uh, my, My sense is we'll probably see more consolidation and this may be just the first step. I completely agree. And and really, you only have to watch, uh, you know, we talked about the sports equinox at the top. You only need to watch any one of these games to just to see tangible evidence of how the cost structure is completely changing, that the commercials are way down. There has been a complete reallocation of marketing spend. And you've got companies like FanDuel and DraftKings and others really going much more in a their sort of own content development direction. We had something really interesting before with uh FanDuel TV coming online and and so on and so forth. So this whole space, as fast as you correctly indicate, it's growing, is completely redefining itself in real time. And there's going to be some major pieces of fallout along the way. And this Fubo decision is certainly one of them. Yeah. And there there will be cycles, Eric, I think kind of ups and downs in terms of the way the marketing spend works. And again, we have seen most of these operators start to be a lot more prudent, a lot more focused on return on investment. Again, we'll see when Texas opens up, when California opens up, when Florida fully opens up, whether they lose their discretion and start spending again like drunken sailors. But for now, I think the focus because of the pressure put on by Wall Street is let's try to gear this toward profitability and, and not just spend foolish money. Completely agreed. And something we'll be continuing to monitor as well. From my standpoint, another piece of NFL news separate from the fall meetings we discussed before, major development coming out of Nashville, Tennessee and the Tennessee Titans. They've been seeking a new stadium for some time to replace their aging Nissan stadium. Well, they've got a deal in place with the Nashville area in the state of Tennessee do just that. And they've got a new domed facility set to come online, perhaps as soon as 2026 going to cost more than $2 billion. A couple of really interesting pieces that uh, about 60% of this, um, so about a billion and a quarter of this is going to be paid for with public money in a nominal amount. That's uh, the largest we've ever seen of public money committed to an NFL stadium, although on a project percentage basis, it's about average in in recent uh, uh, league times. But uh, perhaps even more meaningful is this really marks an escalation as Nashville as a sports market. They did big numbers with the NFL draft a few years back. They've been mentioned as a candidate for MLB expansion. But just given the nature of uh, Nissan Stadium, they've not been able to go after some of the big events in the industry, Super Bowl, college football playoff, Final Four and the like. But having a new domed facility is going to put them right in the mix uh, for all of these major events. And much like we've talked about with Vegas and Chicago and some of these other places, you know, we can expect to see Nashville continue to escalate itself as a major market on the scene. This could be very transformational for Nashville. It already is a great market. A lot of young professionals there. Uh, they've they've got successful teams already, but I think this could really elevate them. And when you think about the Southeast, you typically think about Atlanta and then some of the Florida cities, but now Nashville will be a real player attracting some of those major events. So I think this is, again, very meaningful once it's completed. So that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.